Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Amiel Sade began his professional career with General Electric, but he ultimately decided to pursue his passion, leading to a life in baseball. He broke in under Theo Epstein in the Red Sox front office, part of the 2004 group that helped end Boston's 86-year curse. Sade moved up the ladder, eventually becoming the club's amateur scouting director in 2010. Under his watch, the Red Sox drafted Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley Jr., among others. Though when his colleague Mike Hazen left to become the general manager in Arizona, he made the move with him, becoming the Diamondbacks' assistant GM in 2016. I had a chance to sit down with Sade at the Diamondbacks' spring facility in Scottsdale, Arizona, before camps shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed the draft process, the importance of collaboration in a front office, the high-profile trades involving J.D. Martinez, Paul Goldschmidt, and Zach Greinke, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Arizona Senior Vice President and Assistant General Manager Amiel Sade. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Roman. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. You grew up in Baltimore during the Cal Ripken era. Safe to say you were an Orioles fan growing up. I was an Orioles fan, yep. I grew up uh, early, uh, I guess in the 80s, they, they used to have the Oriole way. And, um, you know, obviously um, Cal came up in as a rookie in 83. And that, that's when I think I just started following baseball. And he was obviously the consummate guy to follow. I mean, he was the guy you wanted to be like. And so, you know, my brother and I, my, my actually my parents were from another country they're from the middle east and they didn't really understand baseball so we had to kind of introduce them to baseball 
so we used to go down to Memorial Stadium all the time. My, my dad would take us, and um, we would try to teach our parents about the game. And uh, and Cal was Cal was a great person for actually our, my my dad to actually like watch the game. And for all intents and purposes, he was my favorite player, and probably still a guy that um, there there are very few people that you know now working in the game for such a long time. There are very few people that you would almost get starstruck, and he would definitely be one for me. Have you ever met him? I haven't. No. What was it like when Camden Yards opened? I mean, that that was the first sort of great new ballpark that opened, and it was right in your backyard. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. It was um, so uh, Memorial Stadium was kind of in a an area where it was a little tough to get to, tougher to get to, and, and they, they created this light rail from um, near my house to downtown Camden to right into Camden Yards. So we used to be able to take the light rail up, my brother and I or some friends, and we would uh, we'd go to games by ourselves. And so it was just, um, it wasn't what we envisioned a ballpark to be like, right? You went into, um, you know, we had been, uh, when I was younger, we had some family in Montreal, and so the, the stadiums we used to go to were Olympic Stadium and Memorial Stadium, so that's what we remembered. Camden Yards was this palace, and and I, and I still view it as that. It's so it seems so pristine to me. Um, we had such a good time. We would walk up and um, buy tickets as sometimes at the gate, and uh, or sometimes from scalpers, and sit in the outfield. And um, you know, we went to the All Star game there. It was just a lot of fun. Um, and I I still view Camden as a new ballpark in many ways. It seems that way. What was your peak as a baseball player? I wasn't very good. <laughs> um, you know, I I ended up. Basically, playing growing up, didn't play in college, and then that was it. You know, I wasn't I wasn't a good player by any stretch. You, uh, you graduated from University of Maryland, nineteen ninety nine, degree in Decisions Information Systems. I think your first job out of school was with General Electric. It was, yeah. Um, what? When did a career in baseball become something that even entered your head? Um, so I, obviously, I followed baseball. I played baseball growing up. Um, it was a sport I loved, and um, and then you know all throughout college. Now, I actually had an internship um, at General Electric, and then, um, you know, so I, I kind of got a head start on doing what I wanted to, what I thought I wanted to do, um, which at that time was the, in, it was the internet boom, and I was involved in kind of the, it was GE's arm of the internet world, and then about two or three years in, we just weren't doing well as an organ, as a company, not GE, but that part of the company, I started realizing, looking around, I'm like, man, this is not what I want to do. It was, it was right after September 11th, and I kind of had this like epiphany where I was like, I got to get out of here. This is not me. And so I, um, I actually reached out. The first person someone had put me in touch with was Mark Shapiro. Um, he's a Baltimore guy. Didn't know him at all. Um, just gave me some advice, and I sent my resume away and called, and it was a stroke of luck that I ended up with the Red Sox. Um, I always think to myself that, if I were trying to compete for a job now, I'd have no chance, right? Just my resume, my credentials, you know, some player that, that played in the minor leagues is definitely going to look a lot better than me. And I got I got the right person on the phone and ended up um, interviewing for a job and got, got a job with, with the Red Sox. It's amazing. The number of people who I've had on this podcast who have gone through Mark Shapiro in one way or another – it's like 50%. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's it, had an impact in some way, even if you never worked for him, he comes up somehow <laughs> in every conversation. Well, that's, that's, that shows a lot about him too, right? I mean, just given the, given me the time we had never met, just, just 15 minutes in to talk to. So yeah, it was all stroke of luck. And I got, I, um, fortunately was able to start with the Red Sox. How did that connection with the Red Sox come about? And what was that first internship like as you got your feet wet and your first taste of baseball? Yeah, it's funny. I got a, um, 
I, got, I called it the scouting line, and I and I had a um, person tell me you can call. I'm not gonna say the specific name, but you can call this person or you can call Raquel Ferreira. And I thought, you know, just to Raquel actually answered the phone. Raquel answered the phone and said, you can call this person or you can call this other person. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, it was I have a Hebrew name, and I thought to myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a guy who seems like he's gonna be more open to to listening to this like not you know just just basically like probably not the right thing to say but I was like looking at I was I, I said I'll, I'll just I'll just call this guy instead and I called him and and he he was he was great he was the guy by the name of Tom Moore who um, who listened to me and hired me and and actually read my resume and I was the first person I worked for and then finding out who the other person working for the like with or around the I don't think I would have gotten very far I think he probably would have hung up on me or not maybe listened to my resume so I was I was fortunate that Tom picked up the phone listened to me and then and so I started as an intern in amateur scouting under Tom Moore and James Orr who was the assistant scouting director at the time and they both work for the Tigers now and they're both good friends you know it was 2002 Red Sox had just gotten sold we didn't have a lot of heads really in in there um the interns at the time were me jed hoyer uh adam grossman who's um marked as senior vp of marketing for the red sox and brian o'halloran and so it was the four of us and um and pretty good pretty good interning group (laughs) pretty good class and brian used to come in night um and, and the three of us would come in during the day and so you know we had we had a lot of fun and um we were able to kind of Adam worked in player development. I worked in scouting, and Jed worked in baseball operations. And so, you know, you, you kind of can figure out the picture from there. We all worked under Theo, and we had a, we had a great time. It's almost like a choose your own adventure book. If you want to call this person, go to page forty-two. <laughs> yeah, our, our younger listeners have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I tried to get my I tried to get my daughter to read the choose your own adventure books. They're hard to find. I'm sure you got to go to eBay or Amazon yeah. and find them. Uh, so you have about a year and a half stint as an intern with the Red Sox. You get hired full time as a scouting assistant in 2004. That spring of 2004, Theo gets a house for all the baseball ops guys in spring training. Uh, I think he referred to it as Animal House. I said one Sox employee called it Phi Sinoplea. Uh, <laughs> was it as much fun as it sounds like it was, or was it just uh, you know guys working around the clock and you? you... Uh, it was a lot of fun. The only, I guess, the only bad part about the house was it, was it was out in Cape Coral and it was about 45 minute drive and you know you'd get into spring training pretty early and and um, you know you'd get back at a normal time but um, everybody left at different times we yeah it was me Theo Jed Peter Woodford Craig Shipley Galen Carr you know in fact I wasn't down there the whole time I would go down um, at weeks at a time but we had, we had Ben Sherrington we had a we had a great time you know, we had poker games, we had um, barbecues, um, we'd stay up and watch movies, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was there was a lot of shenanigans in the house. We all know how 2004 ended for the Red Sox. What was it like to be a part of that curse-breaking season? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I was so excited to be a part of the the organization, even knowing that I didn't really have much of a part of the. You know, I was an intern for two years or a year and a half and then a full, full-time full employee for a season. But just watching it happen. And I had been in Boston for two two years, and so I understood kind of the relevance to the breaking of the curse to so many people's families because I started to hear it, right? Every time well, we went you had somewhere. seen what happened yeah. the year before with Boone. So. That, well, yeah, that too. 
And so it was, um, it was, it was something I'll never forget. Obviously, it was, you know, watching the kind of the team just kind of. Uh, you remember it was down three zero. I mean, just kind of work together and galvanize, and 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 then all of a sudden you you you're like, man, they are not going to lose. And going into Yankee Stadium that year with Pedro's game, I mean, there were just some epic showdowns that I really feel like I'll never see again in any sport. The Red Sox Yankees rivalry was at its peak i think yeah um, i agree and so um just just being it was like almost being a fan too you know being able to be as as much as we worked there like it was it was pretty cool to be a fan and watch watch was watch what was going on yeah being a yankee beat writer during those years you you're watching the games and you're just sort of like all right well nothing's gonna top what i saw yesterday and then it would and yeah you know after the 03 series and, and boone's walk off you're like well you're never going to see anything that's going to even come close to what we just saw. And then we see the 3-0 come back the next year, and yeah. that's just unbelievable. And, the you know, them getting to Mariana. It was, it was, you're right. Even if you're working and you're there as a job, there's, we're all baseball fans at heart. We wouldn't be in this business if we weren't. And those were, that, those were some pretty amazing series to watch. They were intense. And I, I always remember how we felt, um, how demoralized we were when, what was the final score? 17-5 to five or something like that? Right. The Wakefield game where yep. he came in and saved our bullpen. And you, we, I mean, it, I can't imagine being any lower than that as a team. And then coming back and, you know, the Dave Roberts steal. There were just so many epic moments. So it was a lot of fun. 2005, you were promoted to assistant director of amateur scouting. You held that role through 09. You didn't play baseball professionally. Uh, you basically just played like every other kid. Did scouting come naturally to you? Or was that something you had um, to learn? Naturally, no. I don't think... Um, I think it's tough for somebody to say that anything scouting comes natural, right? Because I think it's it's a, I think understanding the game is one thing and having a love for the game, but then going out and really knowing what you're looking for is something else. And I was fortunate because I was around people that were willing to teach, and I was willing to listen, and I and I wanted to learn, and so I really wanted to be in scouting so I could learn it. I think. Um, David Chad, Bill LaJoy, people like that who I was able to, to kind of ride around with helped me kind of learn the, learn, you know, just sitting in the room. Uh, one of the things I think that just helped and um, I guess helped me figure out how to scout is I was, back then we didn't have these video services. So I was, you know, we would get these videos and I would a lot of times pull them down off the internet, off of um, the scouting bureau and then put them into our folders, you know, just kind of the administrative stuff. And I'd watch all the videos and then read all the reports. And so I was able to kind of match what our scouts were saying to watching what the video said. So that's how a lot of how I learned was, you know, just just reading and, and trying to articulate what our scouts were saying and put it into um, watching the video. And um, and then just being around, like learning by osmosis, like sitting in the draft room for years, I had the good fortune of kind of being the guy who was introducing the performance metrics into our draft rooms and some people didn't like that early on remember that was the moneyball years right we were i we were lucky i was lucky because david chad was very open-minded he was our scouting director at the time and and in 0305 you know he left in 05 and then jason mcleod was very open-minded and both of them were very progressive and so they wanted that information so i had a role that early on that kind of helped me get in um, into the draft room and, and have a voice and then and then I was able to go out and see a lot of players and that was that was always that to me like you can't you can't replicate that like building a database in your head 
I think it's what makes players that want to scout that have been, say, 10, 15-year veteran, even minor league guys. Like, you don't have to have played in the big leagues. Just if those guys know in their mind that when I'm done playing, I want to scout, they start to think about the game and, like, with this database of, like, watching a player and saying, that guy's going to make it, that guy's not going to make it, that guy's going to make it. And I think that's really important, and that's, I think, what when you're going out and you're seeing players. I, I remember a lot of most of my misses in but but a lot of times where you were in 2005 and 2007 because they're so it's so real to you going out like being there writing the you know having to write the report and like saying oh man like i'm sending this report in and they're gonna read this and um but yeah i mean i wouldn't say it came natural and i and i i still think we're learning you know i've been doing it for 17 years now 18 years and and i still feel like i'm learning so well, there's more stuff. There's new stuff coming out every day. So I wouldn't say it came natural. You mentioned the initial resistance that a lot of scouts had to metrics and the whole scouts, scouts versus stats debate. When did you feel that started to turn? When did you feel that, that there started to be a cohesion between the scouts and the numbers? Um, or their willingness to... Yeah, that's a good question. Probably for us, I don't know where it came everywhere else. I think for us, maybe 2005, 2006, I think like, I think that they bought, they bought in, they trusted Theo a little bit more. You know, once you build a relationship with your GM and you, you, you have that trust, like you're like, okay, I get it. Like he just won a world series. Like he just traded for Kevin Millar and everyone thought Kevin Millar, you know, like, right. so, you know, I think that probably turned a little bit and that, and we were, we had, we had scouts that really, I think, if you didn't want to get on board, you could leave. And we had scouts that, and, and we had veteran guys that, right. that stayed. A lot of them, and and they they were, they kind of saw the future a little bit, I think, and they were open minded. They wanted to learn. I think 05, 05 was probably a pretty good year. Where I remember we had some pretty heated debates on some players that have gone on to have really good careers, and some that didn't. That we were, we would say. This guy struck out at a 28% clip in the Atlantic 10 or whatever, you know, the Ivy League, right? Like, that's great. You want to take him in the second round. But what's he going to do when he gets a wood bat in his hand and he starts facing pro pitching? Right. And then you go out and they, they strike out at a 36% clip and they never make it. And so I think, like, all that, those kind of conversations helped build a lot of trust in the future. 2010, you're promoted to VP of Amateur International Scouting, held that role for six years. What are the major challenges and differences between scouting amateur domestically and scouting internationally so 2010 i was named the scouting director 2015 i was named amateur and international so okay so So i got my timeline wrong here so from 10 to 14 i just did amateurs and then and i and i would go down every once in a while and scout internationally but mostly just to learn um and then in 15 um 15 16 that those two basically two years under ben uh, ben sherrington that's when i was vp of amateur and international and 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 frankly like i knew going in I, I, to answer your question i think from the differences between amateur and international they're completely different right like it, it, and and especially back then like you you have um you're scouting 17 18 year olds and 21 year olds in the amateur market with a lot of data right even even like now we have way more data than we had 10 years ago but we had a lot of data and then you're scouting 13 14 year olds that are malnourished and you don't know their families or where they come from and you have no data 
and you got to make split second decisions a lot of times. So it's a lot of um, impulsive decisions in many ways, um, and you have to be very confident. I think for me, I went down there just with an open mind of trying to just just be a help out any way I could. Not say this is the guy who's going to get to the big leagues. That guy's not. It's more asking questions like, okay, like why do we think that guy's going to stay at shortstop? Like he doesn't look like he has the foot speed to stay there or the athleticism or. Um, why do you think this guy's breaking? And, and a lot of times your scouts down there answer the question and you feel good about it and you trust that they have a lot of experience. And, and especially when I was in Boston, you know, Eddie Romero ran that department and he did a great job. He had uh, the scouts underneath him, Todd Klaus, Rolly Pino, those, those guys that were underneath him. They did a great job of kind of, they had a really good process. And so me going down there was really just trying to help with the process and not necessarily always helping. I mean, I, if... I, I gave my opinion, but it wasn't. I was I was new down there. I wasn't going to go in and come guns a blazing and try to try right. to tell them who to sign. So you said you have to be confident. How can you be confident when you're watching 13 and 14 year olds? It's tough. You, it's hard. I mean, like that's why I feel like the international market needs to change a little bit. I mean, you know, you. I think watching them multiple days, three, four days in a row, is really important. Um, you start to see things of how guys their approach. You know how they face breaking balls do they flinch do they not i'm just talking about hitters right um if they square the ball up many of them can't hit home runs yet because they're too small they're too small or too too weak but are they squaring the ball up because you're like okay fine like and then you look at their bodies and you're like well that guy's physically maxed out and that guy's not and that guy's squaring the ball up and it's getting to the gap and he's he's physically maxed out and that guy's squaring the ball up and getting to the gap and he looks like he's going to put on 40 pounds so you know, I'll take I'll take the the, the, the kind of the kid, weaker, right. smaller kid, and with with projection and athleticism, twitch, you could see some of that. You know, sure, like you know, you've, you've kids, like you go to a your kids' sporting events, you could see which kids are faster or a little more athletic. It's same, kind of the same thing. The problem is, is you're not making multi million dollar decisions at your kids' sporting events. Right. When I do the rec basketball draft, <laughs> yeah. I don't really have to worry about long term ramifications. <laughs> That's right. We do so. Look, there's there's a lot more information now than there was seven years ago, even in the international market. Um, but but we're still we're still now scouting 13, 14 year olds the same way we were 15 year olds that we were seven, eight years ago. 2010 was your first draft as scouting director. You guys had four of the first 57 picks. What was it like running a draft for the first time? It was it was um, nerve wracking. I reported directly to Theo, which I always say. We, had, we always kind of had a layer in between the scout director and the GM, and I feel like that's a really important layer. And that was that was a little tough because I think as a scouting director reporting directly to the GM, you have days where you want to talk to somebody, talk to, to like philosophy players, and your team just lost three in a row, and you're like, I'm not calling Theo. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, um, so so there was, it was a bit challenging. I had relationships with all the scouts, and I think they were genuinely, at least I believe that they were genuinely happy that I, when Jason left, that Jason obviously took a, a promotion, but that they weren't going out external to get somebody, that they promoted me. And so I had, I felt like I had the buy-in and the trust from a lot of friends on the staff that were our scouts. So I, I trusted a lot of guys and um, I knew who I could count on um, for certain evaluations. You know, I think the draft part is always 
you again these are things you can't replicate you could say oh, easy but then when you get into that room and you're arguing with your gm or your scouts want one player and you want somebody you know you, you kind of got you guys go hand in hand like you have to there are things you have to balance and um that year was a really challenging year for me because um we passed on a player we loved um loved i mean and the guy is and we thought we could get him at our next pick and we did intel on it and said oh there's only one or two teams at most that are going to take him and we were very close with the player and that player is an mvp and he is a he's one of the best players in the league and so you know we i'm gonna have to go look up that draft and figure out yeah you'll be able to figure it out pretty quick (laughs) and those who know the red sox know why because um we had we one of one of the person one of the people on our staff was related to the guy so we um and you know that was always the biggest looking back that was one of my my, my biggest mistakes obviously but you know it, it is you learn from them you know we had a lot of history kind of dictated a lot of what we did that year too we we didn't we we kind of wanted to do something a little different because of um what we did historically your second draft in 2011 was a boon for the team. You guys drafted Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr., Matt Barnes was your first pick, Travis Shaw, Blake Swihart. So obviously now, looking back nine years later, you say, hey, that was a great draft class. How many years after a draft do you feel it takes to properly evaluate the success of that draft? Or of, of a draft? Um, yeah, probably about five. I mean, you look, you look two years after that draft, Jackie Bradley and... Matt Barnes and and probably Blake Swihart are and Henry Owens, all four of those guys were like un, almost untouchable, right? Like those guys were, believe me, you know Barnes is a great player. I mean, they're like they've gone on to do great things, a lot of them. But we Mookie Betts was, uh, if you want to look at something fascinating, look at his his OPS at the end of April of two thousand thirteen, so two years after the draft. His first full season in Greenville, I think he had the lowest batting average in the low A, and his OPS was like 600, right? So you're walking in the beginning of May, two years after, so so your your 2013 draft meetings, so to speak, right? If you want to evaluate your 2011 draft, you're looking at Mookie Betts and you're like, <laughs> why is he still in our organization? Yeah, I mean, like this guy. Well, <laughs> it's like this guy has a, you know, he hasn't, he's not hitting and. You know, he's, we moved him off shortstop. And, and so it's why you have to be really patient with these kids, especially, especially, especially high school right-hand hitters, which I think is the hardest demographic to evaluate out of the draft. And then Mookie started hitting in middle of May and never looked back. And now he's MVP and all-star and one of the best players in the game. He was your fifth-round pick that year, 172 overall. I know you had to overpay him to get him not to go to college, but is he sort of the prime example or a prime example of why the draft is an exact science? I mean, if you go back, you say, well, obviously he would have been a first rounder if you knew, you know, yeah. first pick maybe, if you knew what he was going to be. And yet, you know, we look at Mike Trout going in the mid-20s and we look at, you know, Mookie Betts going in the fifth round and Mike Piazza going in the 60-whatever round and say, you know, yeah, you just don't know when it comes to the draft, right? You can think you know and think you have all the tools, but there really is... Uh, no science to how the draft's going to turn out. Yeah, no, that's true. And um, I, I say people ask what my biggest mistake was, and I say waiting five rounds to take Mookie Betts. And and frankly, it was like waiting nine picks, right? Because we had four picks up high. 
our scouts did an unbelievable job on Mookie Betts. Danny Watkins was their area guy, knew him back and forth. Tommy Allison, Mark Wassinger, Mike Rickard, all those guys really got to know him and, and loved him. I look back on, when I was in Boston, I look back on our reports of Mookie Betts. We had him in the second round. And if, and, and if you really dive into our reports, we probably liked him almost better than that. And, and the fact that we waited to take him, yes, the, the draft is at that time, and probably even now, it's not a true meritocracy. Like the best players don't go one, two, three, four, five. But we probably, sh- even though we overpaid him and, got, and he had a strong commitment to Tennessee, we probably shouldn't have waited. It isn't an exact science. Um, we got here, and Paul Goldschmidt went in the eighth or ninth round, and he was the best player, best Arizona Diamondback, right? And yeah, if they knew what they were buying with Paul Goldschmidt, they should have taken him in the first round. I think um, it's getting a lot better. Um, I do think the draft is more there. There, to your point, where he's saying it's not scientific, it's probably more scientific than it was six years ago. Um, everybody has the same amount of data, and and a lot of teams are you know employing a lot of scouts. Contrary to what people believe, I don't think the scouting market is hurting on the amateur side. Maybe one or two teams. So, um, and we're all on the same players, right? Like those players seven years ago that could kind of fly under the radar with social media, they don't, right? And Mookie Betts was an interesting one because he he played basketball, so he started late. He, that year in Tennessee was all, basically a washout. I mean, his games got rained out all the time. And so scouts were, he was a tough guy to see. If Mookie Betts was in Atlanta, he would have probably gone in the top two rounds. I truly believe that because he would have been over-scouted. You know, people park in Atlanta, amateur scouting, and they, they, that's an easy place to scout. And so he wasn't. He was in Nashville, so it made it harder. You don't sit two or three days in Nashville if his game gets rained out. You just go somewhere else. Through the magic of the Internet, I just looked at the first round of the 2010 draft. Christian Yelich went three three picks after yeah. after your pick. You guys picked twenty, picked Colburn Vitek, who Vitek. Yep. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Uh, when something like that does happen, and you do see a player go on to reach the heights that a Yelich has reached, does it stay with you? I mean, obviously, it still stays with you to some extent, yeah, right? Yeah, that, that one it stings. That one stings. That one is the. Um, you, again, you look. You always look back and you wonder why you did something. So you read through your reports. You go through your your you know just to learn from your mistakes. And and I think I learned. I mean, you get. We tried to get a little too cute. We picked I think twenty and then thirty two or something. Uh, twenty and thirty six. Thirty six. And so we felt like we had enough intel that maybe he wouldn't go in between those picks, and he did. And so now I look back on my mistake and say if there's a player that all our scouts love and and we love we really liked Colbert Vidic so I'm not saying we took somebody we didn't like um if there's a player that like our guys are so convicted on just take them right don't try to don't unless it's like 35 and 36 and you're like one guy's going 35 one guy's right. going 36 and you have back-to-back picks you know you're you 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 are legitimately making a mistake if if you're praying that he gets to the next pick so you know I, and and frankly like i i think it probably helped me long moving forward somewhere down the line i probably did take a player that we wanted to take over somebody else just because i'm like we're not risking it we're just taking him right well, and we're not gonna we're not gonna let four teams in between us have a chance to to pick our pocket but you could go back and look at every draft and find those guys whether it's your team i mean like you said 20 something teams passed on mike trout right yeah 
Um, so, you know, maybe at the time, it's, it's easy at the time to think you're doing the right thing, and then it's easy to second guess down the line. Uh, I'm looking at that same draft. 36, you guys took Bryce Brents. Yeah. Two picks later, Noah Syndergaard got drafted. Yeah. It's but we wouldn't have like, taken Noah Syndergaard. Right. That I guess that's my point. Like, we... We we wouldn't have taken Noah Syndergaard with our second round pick. I mean, we just weren't on. Right. And, and and it's that's our that's our fault, right? We we messed up on that. I can tell you all the guys that we that we wouldn't have taken. The ones that sting are the ones that you would and you have an opportunity and you try to overthink it for right. some reason. You know, I and 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 I'll be honest. It probably happened. It, I probably put that lesson to into effect this year when we took our pick at 26 Blake Walston who I don't know what he's going to be he's a high school lefty but we loved him and we picked 26 and 33 and there were eight or nine teams in between us and we didn't want to lose Blake Walston we didn't think anyone was going to take him in between us we were like you know we had intel we were like there's maybe two teams and I said we're not waiting we're not we're, we're taking this guy because this is the guy we love and even if we can get him at 33 I'd rather get him at 26 and I say know you have him and know you have him right and and so that, that I just think you you can you know those are things you have to always think back on and he may not he may be Cole Hamels he may not get out of able I don't know but we we feel good about him now but that's an important thing I think for people in your jobs or any job to have I guess in life is to learn from your mistakes and don't repeat them right yeah. and so when you've gone through maybe it took the Yellich situation specifically to instill in your head. Don't let that happen again, and and so maybe that helps you down the line. It's 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 interesting to see how sort of you know you had one you guys had one philosophy ten years ago, and now you have a different philosophy yeah. on that because of your experience with that. Yeah, and I think and and I hope that's where my experience blended with our scouting department's experience here. Like you know you you just. You can hopefully tell, you know, we talked through Derek Ladnier as our scout director. He's been scout director for a long time. He's got plenty of experiences that he says, I don't want to do this because this I got burned on this. And so I think with the that's where, not to get off topic, but that's where the wealth of scouting knowledge and experience really pays off in a draft room. That like the the fear of a model taking over the draft is to me, there may be teams that do it, is 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 at least far-fetched in my world because the model doesn't have that experience right you can you can put a model in you can put scouts in you can blend them and probably have the best of both worlds i mentioned mark shapiro before and how he's been a huge impact in, on this podcast the second biggest impact on this podcast has probably been the theo epstein tree has provided me with many people to interview here um you worked with theo for a long time what was your biggest takeaway from working with Theo? Um, well, so Theo and I had a Theo and I have had and have a different relationship. We were, it was probably a more fraternal relationship than anything else. I mean, he looked at me almost like the little brother. So I got I was the one that was me and Adam Grossman were probably the brunt of all the all the uh, shenanigans. You never took a golf ball off the forehead, though, right? <laughs> I didn't, but I was around for that. Um, <laughs> I took other things off the forehead. <laughs> um, but uh, you know what? He really taught us to have fun working, have fun, and be accountable. And um, I think the one thing I, I was looking back on, I've been so impressed. He's, he's obviously one of the greatest executives in all sports. Um, 
but his willingness and openness to um, allowing younger staffers into his world and into our world and like having them you know he he i don't I, i'm not gonna say he's the first person to do this but our suite would be packed with every, anyone who worked in baseball operations could watch the game in our suite and he didn't you know there there were times where he would just turn to, to a young assistant and ask them you know what the hell's wrong with what do you think is wrong with so-and-so right like on the mound or whatever and like he always welcomed other people's information and and i think that's a that's a that's not that wasn't the norm in baseball right like it was shut up and listen like you shouldn't talk until you know it was like you don't have experience right and theo i think flipped that around a lot and and i'm and mark probably did the same i know mark did the same but i was firsthand i got to see it but then and then the idea of like we work hard we play hard we were we would be look we were all young and single we'd be at work till three in the morning we'd all go out to dinner together come back watch late late night games whatever it was and then he was always accountable it was never he you know it was never someone else's fault he always took responsibility even if it was my fault for something he would take the you know and i think that was that's one thing i'll oh and, and mike is unbelievable at that too mike hazen i mean ben was unbelievable at that and so I, I was fortunate to be around those people that I know I, that's something I carry is just accountability, knowing like that, that that's important in this game because relationships are important and people value that. Let's fast forward to the end of your time with the Red Sox. Uh, Mike Hazen leaves to go run the Diamondbacks. Dave Dombrowski interviews you for the GM job. You're ultimately assist, uh, offered the assistant GM job, but Mike tries to bring you out here. And you do. Uh, you, you go with them. Given you had been in Boston for pretty much most of your adult life, was it was it a difficult decision to leave Boston? Um, it was a difficult personal decision to leave. There's a lot of other parts to my life, both my family, my, my daughter's health, who she's tied to Boston Children's Hospital with a lot of things, my relationships with the people that were that I've had in the with the Red Sox, not just on the baseball side, but on the business side. I'm very close with, and it's still I'm very close with a lot of the the business side people. That that was the toughest part. Um, I didn't have family there. My wife's family was there, so that was hard. Um, my kids loved it. They were young. They love it here now. So I knew they they're very adaptable. But the personal stuff was really hard. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series in more than 80 years when you started working there. You left there with three rings. Is that uh, kind of surreal? It is. Um, we were actually, it's funny, I was just talking with a group of people from the Raptors who were here yesterday, and uh, and they had just won. And they, you know, they're obviously still um, in that euphoric stage. And and uh, and they were amazed that, that we have three rings. And they're like, oh, my God. And, and uh, well, what do you do with them? I said, well, funny, it's... I keep them in a safety deposit box. <laughs> nobody ever sees them. So that's the bad thing about it. It is surreal. Um, I wish I could wear them or I could show them off a little bit more, but they're so big and expensive. And um, But it's it's something I think is – I don't take lightly. I know people work in this game for a long, long time to win a World Series and win a ring, and I've been fortunate to be on, in an organization that's won three. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I have three kids, so at least I know I can gift them to all three of them. So you joined the Diamondbacks 2016 as senior VP and assistant GM. 
was Mike the biggest draw to come in Arizona? Yeah. I mean, it, it, hands down. I mean, Mike and I had, Mike and I were very close. We've always had a really close relationship. We worked together for 12, 13 years. I didn't know anything about Arizona other than just being here. I mean, it was a no-brainer for me. You know, when you know, I mean, I, I, Mike was obviously the, the 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 biggest draw, but you know, also the challenge. You know, being in Boston for such a long time and now working with a smaller market team in the National League, learning a different game, all that. There's just a lot of things I wanted to kind of spread my wings a little bit. You guys get the band back together a little bit. You bring Jared, Mike brings Jared Porter here as well. Uh, Tori Lovello comes out to be the manager. You, Mike, and Jared have worked together for a long time. I know Jared went to the Cubs in between. So there's probably a very natural uh, way with the three of you when you're when you're having discussions and, and hashing things out. How often do you guys disagree? And is that healthy? Every day. And yeah, it is. Because we, we, we argue. Sometimes if you're sitting in the room, you're like, whoa, that was pretty contentious. And you would be amazed that an hour later we're eating lunch together or out in the seats, you know, you know, just talking about not even baseball necessarily. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we, um, Hayes and I got in an argument yesterday about a player, right? So, and it was, and it was, it gets pretty contentious at times. How how much did it ease the transition out here that you had? the two of them, that Tori came with you guys as the manager, and that there was, even though you're in a new setting and a new organization and you're trying to figure out sort of what's going on out here, you've got some very familiar faces working right alongside with you. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it helped me personally and professionally, but it, I think it also helps your family because my wife has a relationship with Nicole, with, with Mike's wife and with Tori's wife, and so knowing that my family is walking in here with at least you know and they're in the same boat right some level of like friend like friendships um that's that that you know the personal side helps because we're we're around i know when i'm in here for two or three weeks i'm going to establish relationships with these people and that i work with because we're here so much and we're and so i wasn't that concerned about building the relationships with the group it was more about like how my family was going to kind of interact, and I think having a group of people, it helped. During your first spring training, I read an interview with you, and you were talking about uh, building a Boston-like culture in Arizona. What did that mean to you? Um, the, probably a lot of what I mentioned earlier, like having um, be, having fun, being accountable, um, being like a lot, like kind of being connected with everybody in this in this department i'm not gonna sit here and say that i'm best friends with our young analysts um, but we try to get along with everybody and bring everybody into groups and like we have a big suite that we watch all the games and so like we that's where a lot of the camaraderie kind of goes about i mean we had offices that were very disjointed when we walked in and Fortunately, Derek was was gracious enough to allow us to basically blow the whole thing up and create this open space at Chase Field that allowed everybody to kind of be in a big setting and almost like a very, very, very low level, but like, you know, Google type, you know, like a, you know, it's not like that, but it's, it's, oh, it's open and bright and not like separate offices and um, all those things I think help because it, you know people we work so much and we want to be together and so it allows it allows guys to kind of you know mess around a little bit more too. You took over a team that went 69 and 93 in 2016, but rather than going into a rebuild mode and tanking, et cetera, 
you guys turned it around, won 93 games in 2017. What was the key to the approach of, of that season and, and how rewarding was it to come in and have that kind of turnaround in your first year here? Yeah, I think we were fortunate. We were we were gifted a lot of really good players um, at the big league level. I think that was one of the most important things that I don't think we can overlook. Like we didn't build this from scratch. Like the farm system was probably not very good, but the but the big league team had a lot of really good players. And so I think as we looked at it, as as we looked under the cover and under the hood, we were like, man, this is this is it's a it's a group of players that seem like they've they're very talented but have underperformed so what are the reasons they underperformed and i think we tried to do we tried to win on the margins right like we felt like our catching was a big was a big like our our pitchers relied on our catcher who we felt like we needed to bring in a more a, a, bi- a bigger leader behind the plate we brought in jeff mathis who really i think helped our pitching staff we um you know and so zach Greinke kind of turned his year around and and you know, obviously, all the credit goes to the players. The players obviously perform, but then putting Tori in there, I think Tori is such a great influence on the players. I think was part of the reason why these players wanted to play hard. They play for him, and so you know, I don't necessarily think that there are things that we did that were so dramatic that we turned this from a 69 to a 93 win team. I think they were they were more talented than a 69 win team, maybe um, doing kind of building some stuff on the outside and, and bringing Tori in, help them kind of push. And then once you get confidence and you get rolling, then these guys are like, and then we obviously added JD at the middle of the year. And, and I think then they're like, man, we believe and we have a chance to win it all. And it was, a, it was obviously we got knocked down the first round, but at least it was a fun ride for the first year. And I think it set the tone for years to come, like the winning attitude that we, that, that I think our team kind of at least has. That, that trade you mentioned for J.D. Martinez was a huge factor. He had a monster second half with you guys. What do you remember most about the you know, the decision and, and the actual deal? Um, I, I mean, I remember us identifying J.D. as kind of the guy who um, he had been injured a little bit in the first half of the season, but somebody who we felt like, I don't know that we thought he was going to have as monster of a second half, but we thought was going to be was, was better than what probably the industry maybe was giving him credit for. And I, and Jared was overseeing our pro department, Jared Porter, and he was pushing hard for JD. So I think we were laser focused on getting him. We didn't know our farm system well enough. And that, that's always a challenge. And so that, that was the biggest fear that we had was not, are we getting the right player? Because I think we knew that JD was going to be a good player. It was, are we trading away the wrong player? And so that was the area that we were really concerned about and i think um you know fortunately we were able to to figure out a deal with detroit and and jd was whether those three players that we traded turn out to be really good players or marginal players or nothing i think like we'll never go back and kick ourselves and say man we didn't that wasn't the right deal like we jd clearly impacted our team and i think our organization in many ways two years into your time here you guys traded paul goldschmidt he had been the face of the franchise how tough is it to deal that type of player who has that type of impact on and off the field with your club? Yeah, I mean, it was it was um, it was probably. I mean, obviously, I can't. Mike had Mike wears the decision much harder than I would. Um, but it was definitely the hardest thing I've seen Mike do, being so steadfast in kind of the way he believed we had to move forward. Um, 
part of the reason why, and, and I'm sure everybody says this, the biggest reason, uh, outside of the fact that he's a great player, is he's an unbelievable person. And he's just, we were all very close with him. Um, and likewise with Zach, trading Zach was really hard, Granky, because just because of our personal relationships. But I think we knew, looking at the future for the D-backs, it was almost going to be really, it was going to be really hard to compete and then lose these players a free agency, for for example, or um, try to fill in the rest of your team while carrying them. So we had we, we kind of looked at it as an opportunity at the right at the right time, and you know I think it's it's a great trade for both sides. It was a good baseball trade, you know. I mean, St. Louis obviously signed him, and he's going to be a great player there, and we feel really good about what we got back. It was hard in the community, but I think they probably understand it now. You're seeing that more and more now, teams moving those types of players sometimes where, I mean, just look at Boston moving Mookie Betts, and that's a big market team, right? So it's not only the small market teams that are finding themselves in these positions. Yeah, and I think um, you just, you, you fear losing players for a, a draft pick, and it's just not, or a superstar, it's just not enough. Unless, unless you're going to win it all, unless you're going for it, and you're like, right. hey, we're keeping Paul Goldschmidt because we think we have a chance to win it all. And if we get a draft pick at the end of the year, we get a draft pick. Like, I wouldn't trade him if I thought we had a chance to win it all that year, but we just didn't. We didn't think we were at, We weren't at the point of where we felt like we were going to win the NL West, right? Or even compete like as a favorite for the NL wild card. You were only a few games out of the wild card when you traded Granke. Is that we've seen a lot of teams go through that where you're sort of on that border uh, of contender or not? Is that when you really have to take a hard look at your own team and be honest with yourself and say, "Are we good enough to even if we get a wild card spot, even if we sneak that second wild card, are we good enough to go deep and weigh the pros and cons of that?" Yeah, I think that that's a that's exactly how you have to look at it, and then and then look at the future and like how you know Grenke understood i mean he he said i would do the trade too i mean you know he he was making 34 million dollars on our it was a 34 million dollar hit on our on our payroll and it was um you know we got back players that we felt like are are gonna all impact our major league team and josh rojas did already and um yeah i mean you have to look at it in that in that mindset i mean it's if do we really think that this team we were playing inconsistent baseball we never really got on a run did we really think that this team was going to get on a run to to win it all next the, the, last year? I think we we felt like we had the pieces to do it, but we weren't 100% sure. We didn't want to, like, tear it all down um, because we believed in the core that was here, and we still we do believe in the core, but we just felt like that was the right move at the right time. In October 2018, you interviewed with the Giants for their head of baseball ops job. What is that experience like of going in and trying to sell yourself to some extent to a team to say, I'm the guy to run your team? Um, it's, it, um, you know what, it's it's a lot, it's it's nerve-wracking, it's fun, um, it's flattering to even be considered for any of these opportunities. Um, just the opportunity to get in front of a team owner or a team president and, and you know, take a deep dive into their team and kind of, you don't really have any insights into what they're doing or but you just say look this is how i would improve and and you got you have to tread lightly a little bit because you don't you're not walking in there to to crush them but there's a reason why that job is open um most of the time so um there's a good balance but um 
I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's a lot of baseball conversation. It's about your philosophies. And then you also have to be careful. I mean, it's like you don't, you know, you, you're not a 100% getting the job. So you're not opening up all your trade secrets. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are proprietary to the Arizona Diamondbacks or how you feel that you're not going to sit here and watch them take notes on and then replicate. Especially a division rival. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but it, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. When you think back to the Red Sox group that you worked with and, and, guys who are all around the league now are the gm meetings kind of an annual reunion for you guys yes and no we don't yeah i mean we get we get a chance to spend some time together um every once in a while i think um you know it's funny because spring training is spring training is a, a good time you know in spring training this year i got a chance to spend time with with jed and um jason mcleod and theo and guys like that so um, that's always a good time. And then, um, you, you get to see everybody here at the GM meetings, which is nice, but you don't, you don't spend a ton of time with them. Right. Uh, all right. I'm going to ask you to put your scout hat on real quick. What's the area of your job that you consider your strength? I, I guess I would have to say amateur scouting. It, it's probably the area I'm the most confident in, not, not confident, but the most experienced. Um, I feel like, the, the draft, I mean, kind of navigating the draft, understanding the draft, kind of the way um, the chips fall, the players. I, I, I feel like I can watch, I can I can look at um, a draft early in the year with, with, assuming no injuries, a group of players and say, that guy with, with kind of those tools that we see and that performance is not getting to us. Or th- these are going to be the guys that we're going to have to hone in on and kind of folk have our guys focus on that too and then at least managing helping manage that group of of inform the group of scouts and the information that we have in the room blending the bringing together the the um the analytics the performance-based stuff to our scouting um i i think like all our scouts are really important in the draft room and they want all the information and we give them the information but trying to help them understand it articulate it is i feel like that's one of the jobs i have in the draft room to kind of help them understand it so that you know when we start introducing performance new performance-based metrics sometimes it can be foreign depending on who is explaining it and i and i feel like i have i can i can kind of build that balance so just like players are constantly trying to improve some aspect of their game what's one area of your game so to speak that you would like to improve upon i got many um i you know i mean i think for me the the i spend most of my time in the scouting world and i think the major league side working on the major league side is always is has been an area where for the last four or five years i've gotten a ton of experience um and i feel like i've dove i've dove in um head first into um you know obviously traveling with team making helping make major league decisions but there's still areas like the rules and the waivers and all like a lot of the specific um day-to-day um responsibilities that i i'm 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 still learning right and those are areas that i feel like um every day i'm here i i feel like i pick up on things and even you know may ask a lot of questions on stuff that's definitely one area that I feel like it's um, um, that I that I can improve on. I mean, there there are probably a, a number of others. I mean, I I still feel like 
as, as crazy as this may sound because like I, I talk a lot about the performance and the analytics I still feel like I have I, I need to improve my um, knowledge of all this all the new stuff that's coming out and it and it's it's so fast it's really hard to get it, to understand it all and and there's not enough day, time in the day but really diving into our R&D department and trying to understand a lot of what they do and why they do it um, I try to do that but I don't really I don't think I do a good job um, so uh, obviously, your your immediate goal is to try to help bring a World Series championship to the Diamondbacks. Do you have long term goals in the game? Is it important to you at some point to be a GM or have your own team to to run? Um, if I never become a GM, I'm never going to look back and say I I was a failure. I didn't enjoy the game. My long term goal is to continue to to help. An organization and win and if it if that's as a GM that's as a GM if it's as an assistant GM it's as an assistant GM I want to I want to enjoy what I'm doing I want to have fun I want to be able to be I want my family to enjoy it too I don't want to be a slave to the game and and I think that's sometimes I get caught in that like being on the run all the time and I can't have my kids enjoy what we're doing because they're not I'm not even around um, so I think like the you know watching my daughter even though she was young and she still is young she's nine but watching her like jump up and down at the wild card game was so much fun like i can only imagine she said to me um we were talking about something a couple weeks ago oh we were um actually it's funny we were we were watching the ravens game uh, i'm from baltimore and we were watching the ravens game with a group of people and the ravens lost and it was in the playoffs and my friend's kid was crying and she said, I can't believe he was crying. And I said, why? He really loves the Ravens. And she's like, oh. And I was like, would you cry for any sport? And she said, I think I'd cry if the Dimebacks got in the playoffs and lost. And that and, and it means something because, like, I think those are the things that I, I strive for is to make, hopefully, like, we make people happy, right? You can win a World Series. You bring a championship to Arizona. Those those are goals that, that, um, that I think I do strive for. Emil, thanks for joining me. I appreciate the time. Yep. Thanks, Mark. Matt Klein. We'll discuss his days as a baseball writer, his experience working for both Doug Melvin and David Stearns, the arbitration process, and much more. You can search for executive access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinzen. Stay safe, everybody. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 